The following contains adult language, content, and description of actions that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Jerry Watkins, host of World Music Views, and you're now tuned into the Urban Caribbean Music Edition. Caribbean music is the heartbeat of the world, and the recording industry is the heartbeat of the region. In these episodes, I will take you on a journey on how Caribbean music and culture is impacting the world. Let's go! This episode is brought to you by G-Jam. Hi, my name is John Baker. I'm the founder of G-Jam Studios. Uh, which started in the mid-90s. In the mid-2000s, we became a hotel. I thought it was always very important that uh, our principles of being a hotel was different from everywhere else. So we have a very unique team of people who look after you when you come here, all very versed in popular culture, music, and cool vibes. The studio adds to our guests, and our guests add to the studio. So what also makes G-Jam unique is the fact that when guests stay in the property, Steve Beaver, my business partner, and myself did not want to make people alienated from sessions that go on in the studio. So we, you know, God rest her soul, but when Amy Winehouse recorded with us, she rented a couple of rooms. She was hanging out at our restaurant, the Bush Bar. Likewise, we always say to our guests, if you're passing the studio and the red light's not on, pop in, see what's going on in there. So we try to make it a an experience for everyone staying on the property. So how are you doing, man? How, how's, the, how's the times treating you, the, the pandemic? Good. Good. I mean, you know, it's, um, it's a time for, you know, regrouping, replanning. So I, in this time, I've spent a lot of the time because my youngest son and my wife, Nordia, is, are in, uh, in the UK. I sold up in New York in 2016 when Trump was voted in. I've been there for 20 or 25 odd years, maybe even longer. Um, and I decided to have my next base in, um, in, um, in the UK, which is interesting because I prided myself on saying I'd never lived back in the UK, you know? So yeah. it's an inter interesting time. So I've been here a lot. Um, setting up my HQ here. So I, up until COVID, I was uh, commuting back and forth every two weeks to uh, Port Antonio, G-Jam. I um, have mainly spent my last three years, as I said to you, focusing on really trying to take G-Jam to another level. We've been going now since 2007 as the boutique hotel. And the recording studio, we've been going from when was it? Uh, when did I open? 1998. Do you believe that shit? <laughs> that's when you opened that's, the studio. That's when I opened the studio, yeah. But you did a lot of work in the UK with Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick back in the days, right? That's right, yeah. I, um, I went to New York when I was 19, and I was working. I was a fashion designer at the time, and I was working with... Um, a band called Spandau Ballet. And so we all decided we needed to launch them with a really big event in New York. So we did that in 81. And it was during that trip that I went up to Disco Fever in the Bronx and I saw the burgeoning hip hop scene. And it was from there that um, a good friend of mine, Ruza Blue, 
uh, decided she wanted to do a club night downtown and she did it in Club Negril. And um, she hired me as the doorman and I'd give out flyers and stuff around the downtown hip scene. And um, that was really the first nightclub that sort of the whole hip hop scene came out of sort of underground or in their own communities to more of a more of a, um, a broader audience. Well, it, it was called Nut Club Negril on 2nd Avenue uh, and 11th Street. And before we knew it, she had moved it to the famous Roxy Club, which was a roller rink at the time, just around the corner from Paradise Garage and all the on the west side. And um, within four to six weeks, it exploded. And, um, you know, we had DST, we had Africa Bambard. So Blue was managing a Rocksteady crew. So it was just an incredible time to be in New York. And it was my problem. Punk was a big influence. The whole sort of fashion, new romantic scene in England was a big influence. But I'd say singly that stayed with me the longest uh, has been the whole sort of hip hop movements and we still, it seems like they like G-Jam as well. So <laughs> it does. But going back to your question, when I went back to England in 85, um, Pete Edge, who's now the chairman of RCA, um, he was running Cool Tempo, uh, which was a subsidiary of Chrysalis. And um, he had signed the show by Dougie Fresh. So um, he knew I was really into the whole hip hop scene mm -hmm. and I was, starting an independent uh, hip-hop label in England. So um, he linked me up with um, Dougie's Fresh mm -hmm. and I put together a small uh, club tour for them in England in 1985. So that was pretty early on in the game, you know? And you started in fashion. How did you make that pivot from fashion to music? And, and tell us about your world of fashion. Um, it had always been... I went to Chelsea School of Art to do a course in fashion and photography. Um, it was uh, during the time, that was in 1977, which was the punk explosion. That's when it really came out. That's when a lot of youths mixed from different classes and creeds and cultural backgrounds. And we were sort of given a mandate that you didn't have to do things the conventional way. If you wanted to be in band, pick up a bass guitar and learn it. If you wanted to be a designer, you know, just start making clothes and put them out for sale. So it was a very, it was a very um, do-it-yourself type thing, but a very, you know, uh, empowering experience. Um, my mother was always in fashion. She was a seamstress in World War II and grew up through the ranks from a working class uh, family and she became a very celebrated British fashion designer. So it was always in my, um, always in my roots and my blood. And... Um, so I did that for, you know, for two or three years. But when I went to New York, uh, I made and I got very involved in the club scene over there during the early 80s, which was its heyday, just post Club um, Studio 54. I, um, I had to make a decision, you know, I had to make a decision. Am I going to be, you know, you know, am I going to have a trick of all trades or am I going to be a master of one? So I made a decision that I just wanted to focus on music. So when I got back to England in 84, 85, I decided I was just going to set up my label. It's going to be heavily influenced from my New York experience. And let's start pressing 12-inch singles, white labels, and selling them to what in those days was a burgeoning sort of dance and hip-hop scene in the UK. And you 
find that there are similarities between the fashion industry and the music industry? Yes, because it's trend, it's lifestyle, it's 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 everything's very very connected. Um, you know, since the um, since the advent of social media and a lot of youth spending more time on computers, there's less that you see in street fashion per se. And in, in a way, that's one of the things that really inspired me when I started to visit Jamaica. Was you know the whole uh, reggae scene and the dancehall scene was very fashion orientated and the Jamaican statement in fashion has always been very strong. I mean, they've done things with clothes and colors that you've never seen in your life and yet it works, you know? So um, it's pop culture, it's, you know, whether it's music aspects of popular culture, whether it's fashion, whether it's the political times going on around the forces that, influence the kids and create these these tribes and these scenes it's all interconnected so it's very easy for me and i've always felt that you know it's not just about a, a music is the is the um is the is the way to enter into your soul i mean more than film um it really it infiltrates your whole body your whole energy your whole vibe but then from a visual standpoint your imagery also has an effect upon you. So it's all about emotions and how they affect you and what suits you. And hence, you know, the Brits have always been very big over the years on sort of tribal cliques. You know, you had in the in the 50s and 60s, you had the teddy boys and you had the skinheads and you had the, the punks. And, you know, those things have always been linked to music. I mean, look at ska. I mean, that was adopted by the whole skinhead culture in the UK. And um, it's all interconnected. And that's what makes, that's why I like, because I feel very self-satisfied when I put a, when I'm, I'm helping put a, a marketing a group, I see the relevance of, 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 of the image and I see the relevance and people, you know, this was in the eighties and hip hop. I mean, look at the influence hip hop's had on fashion. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's high street. It became high street short, few years shortly after hip hop had its first few hits. Look at Run DMC, look at the Adidas, look at, you know, the whole culture of that, that side of it. Look at Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren. I helped um, help Malcolm research some of that. Buffalo's album, he came to New York, he showed up at the door of the Roxy. Years before, he was one of the impresarios of the whole punk movement, you know? So when they did the Buffalo's Girl album, uh, you know, it was as much about fashion as it was about the, you know, the... Um, the influence of the hip hop uh, movement. So, so you came up as a as a fashion fashionista, I'll call it that, and then yeah, yeah. You entered music, and then you entered as a promoter, a club. Promoter. Yeah, I'd say it went it went fashion music, it went fashion club, and ended up in music. What and was I your first that. hit? What was your so, first hit? What was your first hit song? Well, it depends. Hits are relative. I mean, um, if you're talking British charts, it was the Richie Rich meets the uh, Jungle Brothers with I'll House You, which went, I think, top 10 in the UK charts. Then, but I had a lot of very cool underground hits like Richie Rich, Salsa House, uh, which was a great underground hit in the eight, late 80s. Um, that, that was picked up by Pete Tong and London Records. Um, 
we were, you know, we used to hold ourselves. We weren't a hit factory. We weren't, you know, G Street was never a hit factory per se, but we held our own in sales. We managed to sustain ourselves in the label. And, you know, every year or so we'd have a, a, a big record. So some of the big records, I mean, what the biggest record I think we've had is, uh, was the PM Dawn set of Drift on Memory Briefs, which ironically sampled Spando Ballet, who I worked with at that time. Uh, that was number one all over the planet, especially in the US. I think we bumped off. Um, I know that song. Yeah, we bumped off Michael Jackson and um, Michael Bolton on that on the top three. And what was the other one? In Europe, we couldn't get Brian Adams off a lot of that. He was had that Robin Hood hit at the time, and it was always number one all over bloody Europe. So, but we did well with that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and then when I moved, when I when I moved the whole label to New York in 1990 when Chris Blackwell and Island Polygram Records bought half of the label. They wanted me to move back from England and set up a division over there, which included G Street and Island Jamaica. So that's when I really started to immerse myself in the early 90s in everything Island Jamaica. And that's when you know, I was working with Shakadimus and Plies, Luciano and Beanie Man. And, and I re-signed Dougie Fresh. Well, I didn't re-sign him. I signed him for the first time and I did his last album, his only main album, which was a play album, which did really well. Which was a full circle moment. What, exactly. What was it like working with Chris Blackwell in those days? Chris, you know, Chris has been the biggest influence in my, in my life career-wise and as a mentor. Um, it was incredible because he could see what I'd built in this small independent and he could reference it to what he and other uh, record people in the independent world had done, including Branson and a lot of the greats. And they were all very corporatized there. He had just decided, um, he had sold his label to Polygram, I think in 89. So I did my deal with him in 91 and it was a, he had just, he had come back in to really take the reins again of, um, uh, come back in to take the reins again of running Island Records in America. So he put a new team together and it was a great time. So I was there from 90 to 96 and he was having hits with, you know, uh, Joshua Tree and you, you, the YouTube drop Joshua Tree album. And um, I think he re-signed Grace. Um, Cranberries were a big record. It was, you know, it was incredible. And we were having hits with Stereo MCs, Bobby Digital, The Ridger, The Great Diggers. It was a really sweet period, you know. It's like we had the Midas touch during that time. Clark's recently launched a, a, a campaign, Clark's in Jamaica. So mm. they, they, in essence, admit so the connection between Jamaica's affinity, affinity for Clark's and Clark's global sales because Clark's doesn't have a store in Jamaica, but they launched a Jamaica campaign. Yes, yes. Did you, did you see that impact in the music industry coming up? Oh, all the time. I mean, Clark's we were wearing in the 90s and it always, I mean, if you think about it, you know, a lot of these sort of, uh, it wasn't just the dancehall scene that were into it. It was the real sort of conscious Rasta scene always where they're, you know, their Clark's and that and the different ones. Um, yeah. And it's not just been Clark's. It, 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 there's always been, um, especially in dancehall in recent life, there's always been the simulations of somebody 
put something on with a bit of swag, whether it's shoes or a shirt or a, or a belt, and then boom, it becomes uh, part of a uniform and a statement. Yeah, Clarks have uh, they've been around for a long time in Jamaica, haven't they? It was a desert boot, wasn't it? It was a desert boot. And then if you remember, I always look at those um, pictures of families and what the fashion was in the 60s and 70s sort of in Jamaica. And they, they wore um, the safari jackets and all that, all, that, all that stuff, you know? All comes back around. Fashion is a pure circle. Music is to a larger extent as well, certain forms of music. So, so that's a good segue. Streaming, you've seen cassettes. You see, you saw records. Yeah. Turntables, cassettes. I've got an eight track. I've got an eight track recorder. My dad had in my office here. It's uh. <laughs> let me turn, hold on. You see it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Old eight track recorder. It's really cool, eh? Wow. <laughs> yeah. This is eight. This is uh, G Jam G Street HQ in. Uh, in uh, London. This was given to me for my big 6-0 last year. It's from my general manager and some of the queens. So they put this London underground map together, right? Yeah. And then here, everything in pink and red is all the records I've been involved in. I'm asking you, you, you've seen the transitions from records to cassettes, to CDs, to downloads, now streaming. Do you think streaming is good for the music industry? Put it this way, I sold my record label to Richard Branson in the end of 1999, beginning of 2000. I got very bored with the industry. I didn't really like the culture of where it was going, very corporatized, very suits. This sort of independent vibe was going out. And I certainly didn't sell it as for as much as I'd hoped and the reason being at that point, um, Napster had just shaken up the whole industry. You could get any master for free for no money online. And it destroyed the industry and the industry shrunk, I believe in the next 10 or 12 years by two thirds. Most of us head out to a music store to buy CDs, but not Mike Chessworth. I've been using Napster for about a year. He goes to Napster.com to get all the music he wants, and he doesn't pay for it. How does he do it? Basically, you log on, and then you click download to basically download the initial program. On the website, he can share his MP3 music library free of charge and get access to anyone else's. We type in Britney Spears, B-R-I. And it's now searching all the other users to see how many people might have Britney Spears on their computer. And there are thousands and thousands. So basically, we just hit one, let's say, uh, oops, I did it again. Double click on that and it starts downloading. So if you have a CD burner, you can burn it on a blank disc, or another way, you can record it on a little mini disc. Since it was created, millions of music tracks have been shared over the internet, but the artists and the record labels have been cut out of that deal. That means they don't get paid. So how do Eastern Idahoans feel about Napster? $17, $18 for a CD is outrageous. I mean, it only takes a quarter and you can go on the, on the internet and reproduce that same CD for 50 cents. I mean, who's not going to? It was a dirty name. Unlike the, the, the film industry, they saw what happened to us and they seemed to get their controls in order so they didn't suffer as bad. But the industry really suffered bad. So. And not so great for the uh, record company, but I think it's good for the you know, people, but it, I like it. As opposed to paying $15, $16 for a CD, you can buy a blank CD and pay 
maybe a dollar, dollar, dollar and a quarter. We couldn't find anyone who thinks Napster is a bad idea, but who's going to complain about saving money? I see one of three. Hey, can I request a song? Yeah. You know what, we get that on. Seamus and Brad make a living playing music for all of us on Z103. <laughs> what do you want to hear? Um, Backstreet Boys, the one. So what do they think of Napster? The quality is so good. It's like, this is no different than going and buying the CD. Should this be legal? I think so. And people will still buy the CD because they want the artwork and the actual CD. But bands like Metallica say Napster is violating copyright laws and they're mad about it. The Recording Industry Association of America is trying to shut Napster down with lawsuits. You know, if their album sales were zero, then yeah, they'd have something to whine about, but when they're still selling millions of records, now, be quiet. Napster says they're protected by the Audio Home Recording Act of 1992, which makes file sharing as legal as loaning your neighbor a movie. And few people think websites like Napster could be shut down now that this kind of technology is available. And the way the system's set up right now, there's no way they're ever going to be able to stop it. Mike agrees and says he'll keep on using Napster as long as it's an option. We'll never have to buy another CD again. When I sold up and I decided to base myself in Jamaica, went back, I went there about 2001, 2002 to be based there. And I helped with the Rising Stars thing. And I realized that you couldn't get arrested. You couldn't get a distribution deal. No one knew whether it was going left, right, up or down. There was the MP3s. There was all these different things coming in and iTunes came out and all that. And it was a very, very rough time. And literally, it only seemed to start to make sense as a viable business around 2013, when they introduced the um, the, the streaming and the um, the the paying monthly for your for your for your music you want to hear. So everyone was. At first, everyone seemed to be a bit. Mm, what's this? Is this going to be like the MP3? Is this going to be? But phew, what's happened in the industry in the last year, 18 months, is bonkers. So money is not worth much. You've got, you know, you, you're lucky to get half a percent or one percent interest for your money in any bank around the world. You understand? Save, you know, specialist countries such as somewhere like Jamaica or whatever. But it's very, very cheap. So suddenly the whole of the financial world has turned to copyrights, IP, and the music industry. You read, I'm sure you're far more up on what's going on in the industry now than I am, but how every day you must open your alerts, you see another person selling their catalog or doing a buyback deal with their catalog. And now there's loads of other models coming out. You know what I mean? So, I think streaming has brought back the confidence. Um, there's a lot of noise out there. There's a there's, to get yourself seen on there. You've really got to know what you're doing in all your elements of social media and building up your uh, building up your um, your your whole um, your your you know your whole awareness campaign around your music. But I think it's um, I, I think it's um, a very very good. I think it's a great thing. I really do. I mean, you know, as an old schooler, I obviously, I love vinyl and I love, um, I love um, touching vinyl and, and going into air, uh, physical areas where you can buy music and so forth. But you can still do that. You know, it's limited. 
I still, you know, struggle a bit with a lot of the um, the Spotify stuff, but it's, you know, once you get into it and you focus on it, it's, it's phenomenal. You get everything, you know, and title and all that. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's basically the savior of the business. I think it's a good thing, um, but it has enough, you know, a lot of the, the, the it, it has its flaws like anything else. What do you think? I think it's good because as you said, the intellectual property is, is becoming more valuable. And with NFTs and, and cryptocurrency being the shift that you can build um, IP on top of art. Um, and music. Think, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. But I wanted to understand from your perspective where you made money selling records, physical records, yeah. if, if that translates. No, because if you don't own the masters, as you rightfully put it, you're not going to make the money. Do you own your masters still or you sold those out? No, no. You know, I'm entrepreneurial. And as much as it's been, it's been, a, 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 it's been a, a positive for me, it's also, um, it's also, you know, I've made some bad decisions. Um, what I sold my label for my masters for you know 20 odd years ago and what they're worth now is chicken shorts but then the money i did get i developed g jam uh, put my kids through school um you see you can't really look at it like that all the time and now i found myself you know a reluctant hotelier so there's always paths and courses to get there, but I've always kept the theme and the reason of G-Jam very strongly in music because we've got so much music going on there all the time, you know? How do you suggest reggae and dancehall acts sell more records? Because currently the genre makes up, even streaming era, the genre makes up less than 1% of global music consumption. Last year, the business made... 45 billion dollars i believe and really and we're way, gonna have to chew the flat when i'm back i'll invite you down for a weekend as my guest and we can chew the fat because i can tell if you're dealing with all you're so on this stuff i can get a lot from you you know you know that's probably the wrong person to be asking that question because throughout my career i've been very instrumental in trying to promote reggae and i've had many you know i did the first signing with kamani marley um, I did all the Luciano and Beanie Man early records and so forth. And we were having success. I find the organization of the business very um, um, disenfranchised. And it was like that back in the early 2000s and the 90s. And it's still like that today. There doesn't seem to be a good organization or a good cooperation going between all the different players within the business. And that's disheartening. And that's that creates, you know, if you're internally strifing on your, on your little island, how can you join forces and go out there and be a major force? So that's one sort of generalization I see as a negative. But more so than that, I think that, you know, your, your, uh, your, your chronixes, your protégés, your, your new school, your black hero, they're doing the right thing. They're just sticking to it. They're getting their TVs in America. They're being very diligent about their work. And they're just working, they're putting the hours in, they're touring, they're doing, they're, they're transcending into the new, um, the new uh, online, you know, media and the whole thing. So I, I just think there will be more people popping. I don't think you can just say, I mean, the, the influence of Jamaica and the influence of reggae globally might only be 
sales might only be one percent but the influence is absolutely huge i mean and i think we can't you know although that's difficult to monetize i don't think we can you know that's a pretty incredible thing in itself you know um but monetization is really down to the individual camps and how they approach it does that answer your question no you, you definitely did because rca's ceo said that he signed which is pete edge who i did the yeah which you know is pete yeah he said he signed protege and his crew uh based on the cultural capital of jamaica correct and not necessarily the record sales um so that that's in keeping of what you're saying in terms yeah. of jamaica's jamaica's international relief. um so, I'm going to have to check one thing, because it was back in the 80s in my mind. I think it was Pete Edge that was running Cool Tempo, but I'll Google it and find it out for facts. It might have been Guy Moot, who's now, you know, he's another huge Jamaica fan. I think he's running, um, he was running Sony, and I think he's now running Warner Chapel. Yeah. But we can check that. We can do a fact check after you've written it. Yeah? I'm not asking for whatever you write as your business, but just want to... You know, I'm 60, man. My memory's not what it used to be. Yeah. Um, Tommy Mottola, he had said that the, the streaming model, Sony had an opportunity to merge with Apple, but Apple wanted to have proprietary ownership and Sony wanted proprietary ownership. That's the, the people above Tommy. He said everybody wanted proprietary ownership. So Sony could have owned a piece of what Apple has for the download in a partnership because Steve Jobs offered it. Do you think that merging technology and the intellectual property can happen? And are you interested in that kind of business model that Sony missed before and, and, and several record labels missed? Well, let me tell you, there's a, there's a better story than that. I was, I was an executive at Polygram Records in the 90s. All right, in the early 90s. They were very powerful at the time. Um, and it was during the time, and I recall um, a meeting being, I wasn't present, with the head honchos, you know, that at the time where the music business basically laughed at Steve Jobs. He said he was going to do this and you should be involved. And their attitude was very arrogant was very um, dismissive. And the legend or rumor goes that when he came out of that meeting, he was so he was so put out, he said, I'm gonna take over this industry. You've got to remember the time of the late eighties and the nineties was when they were selling CDs for 14.99. 16.99 per cd marketing manufacturing all in wasn't costing more than a dollar or two dollars they were printing money so when um when it got into um when it got into the whole um um when it when they just they took their eye off the ball basically and look what happened the sony thing your question is i think you've got to keep some purism with the creative process 
I think obviously it makes perfect sense for artists now to own their own masters. I think what's happened in the last 10, 15 years is there's alternatives to just record companies and publishing companies funding artists and music. There's brands doing it, but you've got to, every opportunity you've got to look at carefully because as soon as it could work, it could also destroy you from the, the starting line if it's the wrong partnership. So it's not a yes question. I just think there's more avenues to explore now when you've got a music project and you're trying to fund it or make money from it. G-Jam, most beautiful place. I'm from Portland and I can tell you it's one of the most beautiful places in Portland to be. The beach, the resort, everything. The, the way you developed it and make it a, a, a creative hub. Some of the biggest hit songs were made at G-Jam. Right. In um, going forward with G-Jam, what are your plans to to develop that artist lifestyle relationship and the tourism offering that you have? Um, when people stay at G-Jam, they generally have some sort, sort of background history on our, um, on our on Steve Beaver and myself, my business partner, and we both come from music. So if we don't have a session going on in the studio, they head down there. Um, if we, um, we've always had live shows at the Bush Bar, obviously not during this pandemic time. And there's always been something in terms of production going on, on property. And when they stay there, they, they see it, they feel part of it. And it's part of our sort of lifestyle and culture. Um, if the studio's not being used, people can pop their head in and see what the engineer's up to. It's, um, it's an experience for people who aren't involved in the industry. Hi, my name is John Baker. I'm the founder of G-Jam Studios, uh, which started in the mid-90s. In the mid-2000s, we became a hotel. I thought it was always very important that uh, our principles of being a hotel was different from everywhere else. So we have a very unique team of people who look after you when you come here, all very versed in po popular culture, music, and cool vibes. The studio adds to our guests, and our guests add to the studio. So what also makes G-Jam unique is the fact that when guests stay in the property, Steve Beaver, my business partner, and myself did not want to make people alienated from sessions that go on in the studio. So we, you know, God rest her soul, but when Amy Winehouse recorded with us, she rented a couple of rooms. She was hanging out at our restaurant, the Bush Bar. Likewise, we always say to our guests, if you're passing the studio and the red light's not on, pop in, see what's going on in there. So we try to make it a, an experience for everyone staying on the property. And now with our new um, Roomba rooms, which were obviously named after the Roomba box, um, there's some incredible archive images and art in all the rooms, which you'll enjoy when you come down there this weekend or next weekend. So it's about being immersed in Jamaican culture, Ma Jamaican popular culture as well. Wow, wow. Uh, the, the, the ability to sell Jamaica as a creative space for international creatives is something that you capture so well. Um, is there, are there any tips you could give to media makers like myself or, or artists or anybody that will make, that are making content from Jamaica as Jamaicans for the world? Authentic, you know? Um, 
don't try and dilute anything. Take the art as it's pure art. Um, and, you know, if it's going to be a, a pro, you know, conscious, then present it as that and give background about it and give it context. If it's a, a fusion or a hybrid, then do the same. Um, a lot of people dress things up that they're not. I think you've just got to be honest about what you're dealing with and what it is. And you can't, you can't kid yourself. It's going to be a huge, huge breakout record if at the end of the day it's it's for a different it's for a different market and so forth yes you can do hybrids there are you know if you create a fan base and a groundswell through your social media and that you'll be amazed how that can virally just take you to places you never imagined but um it's about um just being true to the true to the country and true to what J jamaica is special for who, who are you listening to now Music wise, um, Black Hero. The all them a try, them can't deny. You'd stop your eyes, open your eyes. No, we think flights and mama nice. My friends, them all right. I'm a young kid, young boy. Um, I'm listening to um, a lot of neo soul. I mean, I was involved in a lot of neo soul projects when I towards the end of G Street, um, with Amber Sunshine, with Olu. And um, there's a resurgence of it in the UK. Um, I like this. Uh, let me have a look. Hold on. Um, some of the people I, I like this. Joy Crooks. She's got a really nice vibe. Uh, always loved Georgia Smith. We did a really incredible, just at the end of um, 2020, 2019, we did a collaboration with... Um, Oliver Rodigan, and we did a retreat. We've been doing a lot of artists and creative retreats at G-Jam, and places being styled for that. Sometimes, you know, we have three recording studios going and four writing rooms. So if you look at, um, if you Google, um, so Oliver Rodigan, Rodigan did uh, put a team of producers and artists together, including Georgia Smith, and we did an association with G-Jam and Face at the end of 2019. And it's called Voices of Jamaica. We are in Portland, G Jam, be one of my favorite places in the world. Just literally is a group of people just vibing, creating music, just being free, man, no stresses. It's blessed because you're all in the same place, you're all eating the same food, breathing the same air. Creativity then explodes exponentially. A lot of that sound I'm enjoying, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm beginning to hear artists come out of Jamaica that are also on the similar, similar vibe. My last question to you is what do you think about the Grammys? especially the reggae Grammy? Um, you know, every year there's controversy around it. I don't think I followed it up this year. Can you update me on what happened? Um, Buju Banton was nominated, Skip Morley, um, Toots. Toots won, by the way, posthumously. That's right, yes. Amazing. I've worked with Toots. Wonderful man he was. Yeah, he was. Tell me a story about him. But after you tell me about the Grammys, tell me about the Grammys, then you tell me a story about it. I think the Grammys are good because people get attention, as it were. Um, but I don't think they're as important as everyone makes out they are. Jamaica loves awards. They loves uh, Jamaica love awards. And um, 
um, recognition. So I think it is, um, it's important, but I don't think it's the be all and end all. Having records in the charts, having records with your streams and that is the be all and end all. And it doesn't seem the two collate with the, with the, with the way that the Grammys are put together. Um, not them saying they should be, but the way the Grammys are put together. I think there's very different variations. Yeah, because it's like a... Do you agree? It's like a boys club awarding each other, right? Because it's people... Yeah, and there's a lot of that nepotism in the industry, you know? Yeah. Always has been. Tell me about Toots and the Jolly Boys. They try to make me go to rehab, but I said, no, no, no. There was a really cool funk producer called Prince Charles, and Toots decided to make an album with him. So he came down to uh, G Jam before we were a hotel. No, we were a hotel. I can't remember what year it was. Uh, and they produced an album. And just such a vibey, cool guy. Um, I was actually in contact with him about. When was it? It was about 2017, 2016. He had approached me. We were talking about doing a record and maybe getting involved in some management. Uh, it never came to anything, but I've always been great friends with him. And he's always always come for a chill out time at G-Jam. And the Jolly Boys? Well, sadly, the Jolly Boys, uh, in their most authentic form, are no longer with us. Um, it was an amazing project. It was one of those sort of fateful projects. I'd moved to Jamaica in 2020, 2002 as my base, full-time base. And then um, I had, um, I was with Mark Jones, a dear friend of mine who had Wall of Sound Records. And we'd already done a really incredible project, which still, you know, Diplo and Switch give us credit for you know, the early ideas, the early foundation ideas of Major Lazer. And we did an album called Two Culture Clash. And we put a lot of the dance producers with a lot of Jamaican artists and we all hung out down at G-Jam. And I was exec producer on that. And um, so Mark came down to stay with me a few years later. When was it? About 20, 28, Yes, it was just after the bubble had burst with the recession. And we would just opened it as a hotel and me and Steve were scratching our heads and going, what the fuck are we going to do now? We've spent all our money, you know, turning it into a boutique hotel. And this guy, um, Albert Minot, very tall, very slim, very um, wiry guy, came in with his guitar and he started singing Mento song, him, Johnny, on the... Um, on the um, um, rumba box and I looked at Mark we looked at each other and said this guy's a fucking star he just had so much energy and presence and I never really paid much attention to the um, never really paid much attention to the uh, Calypso Mento thing so I started to research it so we took him into the studio with um, my in-house engineer at the time an in-house producer who's doing some great music now called Del Virgo and um, we took him in there and we decided, and I sat down and we did a cover of Rehab. Um, Rick Hill good shot the video. And before we knew it, it went viral. And we, then I took my, took my iPod and basically looked at all my 
songs I loved and we did Mento versions of them all. We made Great Expectations. We signed the record to E1 in America and we're off to the races. We did, um, we toured, toured the world, had them gone private jets, going to private parties on super yachts. And then we ended by supporting um, Sade, another artist I've worked with over the years and a good friend on her O2 European tour. So it was just, and it, it took the sting away of, um, you know, the recession because I kind of jumped back from hotel into music and coordinated that. It was a pretty incredible thing. And they played the Bush Bar a couple of times a week and it was just a, a, a fabulous time. But alas, you know, they all started hitting their late 70s and um, early 80s and they left this, they left this world. John, you did a lot of good work. Thank you so much for this interview. You're welcome. We should do a follow-up, all right? We will. We will definitely do a part two. I can see this conversation going viral already. Oh, I can. Yeah, well, I thanks for the heads up that it was on video. Couldn't be there. <laughs> all right. So let me know if you need any clarification, all right? Thank you, man. Thank you. All right. Take care, man. Bye-bye. So all right. Bye. If you want to hear the songs mentioned or heard on this episode, go to YouTube or on your favorite streaming platform and search World Music Views Playlist to hear more.